The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast, episode number 11. We are back to our regularly scheduled programming. It's busy. It's getting busier, that's for sure. Uh, Apologize for the delay in episode last week, but I had some IAs, so got a little bit busy. I'm sure you guys understand. Speaking of busy, Alaska. Daniel, Mother Nature, you need to calm down. So... To all the crews in Alaska that are cycling in and out, uh, stay safe, keep up the hard work, and uh, enjoy the land of the midnight sun and hummingbird-sized mosquitoes. Today on the show, I've got Mr. Stuart Paley. Stuart's a photographer based out of Southern California. He's also contracted by uh, a major agency to actually document wildfires with his photography skills. He uh, has been on over 100 wildland fires, and he's also got a book out there called Terra Flamma, Wildfires at Night. He basically takes long exposure photos of wildland fires at night, and they are epic. They're so, so good. Definitely uh, pick up that book. It's good uh, station coffee table reading material. And it also kind of uh, goes over the effects that uh, drought and climate change have on our environment and how that directly influences fire behavior and the communities and firefighters involved. He's a good dude. He's uh, been at this project for just about five years now, and uh, he's worked his ass off for this. So give it a look. Check out his social media. A lot of his photos are on social media as well. Uh, you can just find him at Stuart Paley on the old IG, the old Instagram. And yeah, he's born and raised in Southern California, and he's got a prestigious list of media outlets that he's actually uh, done work for. Uh, Some of those include (laughs) National Geographic, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, and shit, man, even Time Magazine. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Stuart Paley, welcome to the Anchor Point. We're rush hours, three hours long. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, dude, it's terrible. Death never ends. All right, let's do this thing, man. Cool. Ready? All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Today on the show, I got Stuart Pally. You've probably seen his photography, and you've probably seen his book, Terra Flama. Stuart, how you doing, bro? Hey, good, Brandon. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Hell yeah, dude. It's awesome to have you on the show, man. So what's been up in Southern California lately? Well, things have been refreshingly quiet as far as fire season goes. We've had quite a few small starts here and there, a couple fires that were held to one or 200 acres or less. And it's been a really nice time for the last six weeks to kind of sit back, work on other projects. 
uh, relax, work on PT and, and take care of some things around the house and, and travel like a normal human being. Uh, I know we were talking when, when we met the other month that this is the first time in seven years since I started photographing wildfires that I have not been to any wildfires in June and for now most of July. And to be totally honest, it's been really nice living a normal life for this this part of the summer. Yeah, but but uh, I'm sure things will be changing come fall. Uh, we'll see, man. And uh, let's bring up that climate thing, that, that climate study that you were talking about uh, earlier today when we were off record here. Sure. So there's a... Um, uh, a climate scientist um, named Daniel Swain, who's a postdoctoral fellow at UCLA and a couple of other institutes, and he has a blog called the Weather West Blog that discusses some of the climate and meteorological um, issues and uh, trends that affect wildfire behavior in fire season. And uh, this Friday, maybe about an hour or two ago, he just came out with a blog post talking about the uh, high pressure ridge that might bring monsoon moisture to California next week. But overall, the, this blob of warm water over the Northwest Pacific Ocean that could potentially uh, bring us above normal temperatures, or as he says, anomalous temperatures come fall for fire season. So what I take that to mean is we have, based on the last two years of fire behavior and the years before that, I think we have the potential for a perfect storm, if you will, of wildfire conditions for September, October, and November. And what I mean by perfect storm is we have above normal temperatures, so it's going to be hotter, fuels are gonna dry out more quickly, burning indexes are gonna be higher, uh, ERCs are gonna be higher. And then what you're also gonna see is um, uh, more fuel from the super wet winters we've had. The fuel loading here in Southern California is very high. We still have a lot of dead and down fuels that didn't make it through the drought over the last five years. And we've got seasonal grasses. In some cases, they grew seven, eight feet high. I went for hikes, Jeez. and some of the invasive fennel and, and other plants are above my head, and I'm only 5'8". But, I mean, you look at the manzanita, the chemise, a lot of these other uh, native shrubs and grasses and chaparral we have here, and they're huge. And a lot of them are still pretty green. Some of them are even still flowering at the higher elevations, which is one of the reasons why season hasn't really ramped up here yet. But as we continue to get these heat events... Uh, even some Santa Ana wind events come come August, September, it's going to dry it out. And if we have above normal temperatures, high fuel loading, these grasses, these ladder fuels up around, and, and especially in the Sierra fronts or around the uh, the basin and the, up around Sacramento, uh, these middle mid elevation slopes, is if we get wind events, you know, the fuels are dry, the fuel loading's high, all it's going to take is a couple wind events. We're going to have conditions similar to the Thomas fire, the wine country fire siege, uh, and God forbid something like, you know, the campfire in paradise. But unfortunately, we have to look at the reality of the situation and, and sort of look, uh, you know, what what is current and expected fire behavior like. So current fire behavior, we got to look at what happened the last two years because we haven't had that many large campaign fires here in California this summer. And it's been insane. And then we have to look at what expected fire behavior is going to be like and, and have to imagine that we're going to be seeing similar results to, to last year. And of course, I'm not a fire behavior analyst. I'm not a fire expert. I'm just a photographer, but I've been to over 100 fires, and I'm typically where the fire behavior is the most intense, where the fire is moving, because that's where the visuals usually are. And from my own experience and in, in being able to learn from wildland firefighters like yourself or battalion chiefs, Cal Fire, Forest Service hotshot crews, I mean, all over the spectrum of wildland firefighting, it's just my, my senses are telling me that once we get some wind events in the fall, things are going to ramp up in a pretty severe way. 
Well, let's hope not. I mean, I always hate trying to predict a season, and I always, I'm always wrong because I never have like a crystal ball or anything like that to get a good gauge on what the season is. It's kind of just random, it seems. But I have yeah, noticed. Let me, let me, let me and you make a really good point. Let me backtrack on that a little bit. This is just what I'm thinking in my own head, right? This is not. I'm just sort of armchair quarterbacking this, and I always hope that things aren't as bad. And we, we don't know what's going to happen uh, in the fall. We, we don't know. It doesn't happen until it happens. It's like. You know, people like, what do you think about fire season? Ask me at Thanksgiving or ask me at Christmas. So that's Mm -hmm. true. I do want to say that's a caveat. I'm just going based on what I've seen. But of course, you know, if we don't have wind events, there's not an ignition, nothing could happen. And it'd be nice if things were really mellow. So let me let me temper everything I just said with that. Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't no one has a crystal ball of how the uh, fire season actually is going to turn out. But then again, in the past seven, eight years, over the course of my career, I've known that I've seen it firsthand that fires have been getting larger, they're growing faster, and they're more destructive. So with that being said, we don't know what can happen. Also, we need to be prepared for what could. We've had lots of lessons learned from the Thomas Fire, the Woosley Fire, the uh, Wine Country Siege, and of course, the Camp Fire. Mm -hmm. So we'll see where it goes. Absolutely, and I think that's the most important thing is to hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And and I think that a lot of folks who are in the fire world over the last seasons are, are sort of the grizzled veterans have people have seen, seen it all at this point to some extent. And I think just being aware of what's happened and being aware of that on the fire line you know, for safety is just, you know, what, what could happen is, you know, just be, being aware of that. And, and like anything, situational awareness, it's the same thing in photography. When you're on the fire line, you've got a camera up to your face and sometimes you literally get tunnel vision when you're looking through the lens. So Every once in a while, I just got to put the camera down, look around, you know, see how the fire is behaving, see what the firefighters are doing. I have a little Kestrel 3000, the pocket weather meter, and sometimes I'll just take weather readings every once in a while just to see, you know, what the RH is doing, what the winds are doing, things like that to, to be aware of the weather. Because a lot of the times I'm by myself, so uh, it's incumbent upon me to, to be safe and, and sort of going back to the overall work that I do and in, in a little bit of a preface and, and explaining the work I do. The personal rules that I have is number one is be safe. Number two, stay out of the way of first responders, firefighters, law enforcement, running evacuations, whatever. And once those two things have provided, uh, provided, been provided for, then I'll go out and make pictures. It's like wildland firefighting, right? You count for your 10s and 18s LCS. Then once you've accounted for the safety stuff, go fight fire aggressively. And for me, it's like once I've accounted for the safety stuff, go out and do whatever you can to make the picture that's going to tell the story. I like it, man. That's some pretty good, pretty good rules to live by. I mean, mm-hmm. we basically abide by the same rules. So Yeah, absolutely. Got... Well, I mean, I don't need to reinvent the wheel. I can just learn from the pros. Yeah, and absolutely. Speaking of learning mm-hmm. from the pros, man, uh, how many years have you been doing this? Because it sounds like you've got a lot of fire knowledge, but also you're not a firefighter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, area that I'm in. So this will be my seventh season photographing wildfires, and uh, I've been a professional photographer for about that long. I started doing the Terra Flamma project right when I finished grad school. So I have a master's in photojournalism that I got from University of Missouri. And so um, I was out there for two years and I came back to California and it was in the midst of a a really severe drought. This was summer 2012. And I got assigned by the paper I was working at to go to a couple small brush fires and, you know, a few homes were lost here and there. But I was really struck by this collision of nature and and the development of humankind. Uh, This, the first fire I went to was out in Temecula in, in Cal Fire's RRU in the Riverside unit. And there was a very large ranch home that the fire had uh, burned. The house was completely involved, and the 
uh, city engines, type ones were in the driveway pulling what they could out of the, the garage, you know, kids, Barbie car, toolbox, family photos, all the furniture was in the pool. And I go back to the swimming pool and it's just covered in ash and the firefighters are walking around. And to me, it was just the palm trees were still burning like little candles. And I was very much struck by this scene, how there's this powerful fortune of nature, but there's this, there's this impact on, on the people who live there. And I said, Hey, the drought's getting worse. I think this is a project I can do in my own backyard, the backyard being sort of Southern California, everything from San Diego, let's say up to Santa Barbara in the Southern Sierras. And I started going to fires that, that summer. I, I moved back uh, a year after that to California. So 2013, I photographed the powerhouse fire uh, up in Los Angeles. I went to the mountain fire, which was 30,000 acres, type one uh, federally run incident up in Idlewild in the San Bernardino National Forest. So very quickly when I started photographing wildfires, I was exposed to campaign fires with extreme fire behavior. And I started sticking around at night. I've always loved road trips and exploring and photographing the night sky. And so I think my passion both for telling environmentally related stories and, and photographing at night sort of led me to start the, the Terraflama Wildfires at Night Project. And of course, now we're here seven years later, I've learned a little bit more about wildfire. Uh, you know, I work as a call when needed contractor for the Forest Service on occasion. And, um, you know, I get called up a lot by newspapers and magazines to, to photograph and cover wildfires. And, and I think that the project expanded just beyond night photos. It's, it's photographing, telling the stories of firefighters, the, the men and women out on the fire line, sort of what they're going through, the hard work they do, and, and a little bit about everything that surrounds the wildfire world. So, and, and to answer you know, the other question you talked about, I am, I am not a firefighter. I don't do active fire suppression. I never have. I am trained as a journalist, a photographer, a storyteller, and I've been fortunate enough to have been given this trust and access into the fire world to help tell that story. Um, you know, I do have a firefighter too, uh, but currently I'm, I'm what the forest service has me as a technical specialist. So, you know, I do, do my, have my red card. I, I, I do the a PT test and, and all that and do my refresher. So, you know, I'm red card and fireline qualified. I have the same PP and a file firefighter would carry, you know, I've got a pair of Nick's boots, Nomex, you know, everything helmet, couple, you know, two different fire shelters for my web gear and then for my pack if I'm out on the line for a long time. Goggles, you know, my, my you know, gloves, you know, weather, the little weather meter, everything, um, you know, that, that your typical wildland firefighter would carry, of course. But uh, my tool, instead of a Pulaski or a saw, is, is a camera. And uh, one thing I want to acknowledge is I, the work that I do really stands on the shoulders of uh, other photographers who came before me who photographed wildfires. Uh, Karen Watermaker, who photographed for the Forest Service, Kari Greer, who still photographs for the Forest Service, Tom Story in Arizona, Kent Porter up in Northern California, who's been with the um, Santa Rosa Press Democrat, and, uh, and Mark Theason at National Geographic, and I'm sure there's some other names I'm forgetting. But, you know, there's a, a tradition of decades here of photographers who specialize in photographing wildfires. And, uh, you know, it's their work that is really that I saw as a kid in the 2003 fire sieges, 2007 fire seasons, and I was just captivated by these images of just these extreme events and and i sort of got drawn to fire through their work so i you know their their work that they did very much influenced me and uh some of them today are you know I, i'm fortunate enough to call friends and, and, and mentors as well that's awesome man so for as far as your equipment and all that stuff goes uh do you have to like front that stuff all of all out of your own pocket or is some of yeah. that kind of provided from sponsored by the agency because i know you're a contractor for uh, a couple of the agencies and you do some uh, work for their PIOs, et cetera. But do you have to provide your own equipment? Yes, that's correct. So uh, other than, uh, so everything I bought out of pocket, uh, 
well, when I started, so I had all my PPE, obviously my fire shelters I paid for, my packs, my my first pair of White's boots, uh, my, my second pair of Nick's boots, all that I paid out of pocket for. Um, lately, though, in the last two years, I've had Crew Boss. I've traded them some photos for some equipment. Uh, Nick's has been kind enough to rebuild a pair of my boots. Um, I've, I've done some work with Mystery Ranch, and now they've, they've provided me with some equipment, which has been really great. But I still basically pay for everything on my own. Like, if it, like all my camera equipment, something gets broken, I pay for it. Um, so my, as a contractor, I'm on my own for everything. So nobody gives me, no agency gives me any equipment. They do provide me with training, but I don't get paid to go to the training. So yeah. as a self-employed person, I basically have to forego a day of productive work to get in new work or paid work to go do that training. So in a way there's also an opportunity cost of the training. And of course, from a business standpoint, I'm not photographing and covering wildfires, to make a ton of money. If I wanted to do that, I, I studied finance in undergrad. I would have gone into business. I do this because I love it. <laughs> I love telling the story. I love being out on the fire line. And that's the thing. Like I've become immersed in this fire world. Like, I mean, it kind of brings you back every year. It's like, there's a little bit of self, um, you know, a, a little bit of self suffering that goes into it, but it, you're out in these incredible places, seeing incredible things that most people don't get to see. And it is a massive, massive privilege to be able to share that. Hey Amen. Suffering makes stories. That's for sure. It's true. I mean, that's life, right? I mean, well, Theodore Roosevelt, who's a historic figure who I really look up to both for his helping to start national parks, support of the Forest Service, and just being a naturalist and all-around badass. He talks about this concept of the strenuous life where it's sort of like, you know, life worth living is sometimes you have to make yourself uncomfortable and push boundaries, and there's a lot more nuance to it. But that's the general gist I get of it. And almost everyone to a T that I met in the wild and fire world sort of subscribes to that. I mean, people could go out and do another career and make more money. But there's a certain uh, camaraderie and, and lifestyle that comes with it that a lot of other people don't ever get to have. And maybe you don't do it forever. Maybe you hotshot for a couple seasons and go to a red engine. Who knows? But the point is, is that there's a lot of benefits to it as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing I think it makes uh, a lot of these things that we experience in the field as firefighters. I think we carry off into the, uh, the real world, so to speak, as just lessons learned and a way to carry yourself throughout life a lot of these things translate directly to your personal life. So for better or for worse, I guess it's uh, all around a good thing. True, true. Absolutely. So what else do you do? Um, you mentioned that you, uh, sorry, on your website, it mentions that you shoot for National Geographic. Have you been featured in National Geographic at all? Well, I've, I've shot some work uh, that has been featured uh, in National Geographic. Uh, mostly as images that I shot at fires, they've been able to use the image in a, two different stories that have been printed in their magazine and in a couple of online stories. And they've interviewed me as well for their proof blog, which is sort of their, their photography blog that they run on the website. And, um, you know, there was a project we were working on this spring. The timing didn't work out, uh, with some wildfire related stuff, but I'm really hoping to in the future in the next year to possibly do a wildfire related story for them. Of course, like anything else, I'm a freelancer. It's all about timing and access and if things work out, but I'm very grateful that they've given me the opportunity to share some of my work on that platform. And they've got a really robust climate desk there. And, and the thing about wildfire and forestry in general, there's so much things related to climate, uh, technology and science that, that, that Nat Geo finds very interesting. And like I mentioned earlier, Mark Thiessen's a, a longtime staffer for National Geographic, and he's done some incredible wildfire work and done a number of really great stories. So if you're ever interested in seeing some incredible wildfire photography and reporting, just go to Nat Geo's website and type in Mark Thiessen's name, uh, M-A-R-K-T-H-E-I-S-S-E-N, and you'll see some of his work, and it's pretty cool. I'll definitely have to check that out, yeah. 
absolutely and just all around great guy too that's good man it's good to see that like other like-minded people are actually doing this professionally mm -hmm. it's always good to have that tribe that culture totally yeah. it's a small it's a small world but there's a few of us out there it is it is i mean that's encompassing all of fire too whether you be operational command smoke jumper whatever photographer it's a very small community totally so you've also been, I've also read on your website, you've been featured in, uh, we already covered Nat Geo, um, but New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and Time Magazine. That's pretty impressive, man. Well, again, it's been a, it's been a huge, it's like working with the, the Forest Service as a contractor at incidents. It's just a, it's a privilege and an honor that these organizations trust me to, to make these pictures, to tell stories and that, uh, you know, they reach out to me when these things happen and, one of the reasons I started doing the, the wildfire photography is I strongly felt, and even more so now after the last two years, that uh, man-made climate change is having a very large impact, uh, somewhat indirectly, on wildfires, where we've got more days per year of hotter and drier weather that is conducive to uh, large fire behavior and growth. And so I've been able to go out there on the front lines and share it, and you know, just with letting the pictures speak for themselves of this fire behavior, neighborhoods that have burned down, you know, hotshot crews that have been in some awful terrain, just hacking line all day, looking, you know, covered in ash and grizzle at the end of the day and kind of showing that part of the world that the general public doesn't get to see. And I, I think it's important that people see that. I think that we're sort of fighting a war against the elements, if you will, in our own backyard and, and how we've talked about how the Forest Service, uh, or not Forest Service, but incidents in general, there's sort of a paramilitary aspect to have that organization and discipline to be able to fight these large incidents on a large scale. And it's, and it's a very effective, but again, I'm trying to, not just be the news van on the side of the road. I'm trying to to go out and you know hike in the back of a, a crew walking out and cutting the handline and get out there and get someone running a saw and all the wood chips coming out of a tree or you know the retardant drop that hit someone's helmet. Just really trying to get in and show that. I had a professor in grad school at the the newspaper I worked at at the University of Missouri, and he's like, when you photograph and talk to someone to get their caption, I don't want to know just their name and where they live. You know, it's like. I want to know what makes them tick. I want to know what they had for breakfast. Like, put me in their life. And that's always really stuck with me. It's like, you know, let's, like, there's a whole, it's, the a photo is more than just the image. The image needs to tell a story, but there's a whole ecosystem of storytelling around that. And I've really tried to expand on that. That's why I do a little bit more writing. Um, I'd love to share. There's, there's two big projects I'm working on right now that I've been spending a lot of summer doing. I can't quite talk about them publicly yet, but I'm really excited to be sharing them probably in the next six to eight weeks. You know, I'll be able to, to make some announcements that, that have to do with all this, which I'm really excited about. That's awesome. And that's the cool thing about Terra Flama uh, is that, you know, it's raising awareness to not only what we do in the field, but it's also raising awareness by sharing the effects of climate change. And I've, you know, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of... Uh, how climate change is affecting wildfire. I'm mm -hmm. a believer in climate change. And I know there's a lot of people out there that not, aren't necessarily. And I'm like, how can you believe this when you've been on the forefront of the fight against mother nature for X amount of years, you've seen it firsthand. Absolutely. And, and I think unfortunately a lot of things tend to get politicized and, and my take on it is in the fire world is, we have to look at the reality that's in front of us, what's happening with fire behavior. And the other thing is, is it's climate change is a big piece of the puzzle, but there are also other contributing factors. We've got building homes in the wildland and urban interface in areas that are prone to fire behavior. Uh, it's incumbent on homeowners to have defensible space. Some of these places where we built homes, I don't think we're very smart places to build and we rebuild there constantly. So we're going to have to live with the fact that it's not a matter of if, but when fire goes through also, 
um, the historic policy of fire suppression. Um, that, that in many ways was flawed. Of course, some areas you have to suppress the fires because the values at risk are so high. So you see managed fire happening a lot more and, and it's been really, really effective in a lot of ways. And of course, and, and then cyclical drought and then the drought that's influenced by climate change. So again, it goes back, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of gray areas to this discussion, but my take on it is it's, for me, it's not a discussion of whether climate change exists anymore. That's like trying to argue the world is still flat, right? It is, <laughs> to me, it's, an, it's, an, it's an assumed known. And at this point, it's, you know, it's a discussion of how it's impacting us, how fast, and where do we need to put our resources to change this? And actually, uh, between 2016 and 2017, uh, they survey Americans every year on climate change being a serious issue, and it jumped almost 10 percentage points. So close to three quarters of Americans of all political affiliations believe that climate change is an important issue that we need to address in this country. So again, I think because of, and a lot of it has to do with hurricanes, floods, all the fires we've had. I mean, the fires were, that we had last fall and the year before were international news stories. And, and so I think just people seeing this stuff on their screens is, is, is an awareness thing. People are aware of what's happening. That's another thing, too, is like I, th I don't think a lot of people are aware of the long term effects of like catastrophic wildfire. I mean, if a fire comes through an area, yeah, the initial suppression costs are extremely, extremely costly. Right. But mm -hmm. it's the other stuff that no one thinks about that's even more costly down the road. You got landslides, you've got bear teams, you've got all this recovery efforts. Uh, can you salvage log it? What, all of these other things that people don't think about. Absolutely. And I, I was fortunate enough when I was on assignment for the Forest Service, the Ferguson fire in August of last year. Uh, I was there at the tail end of the fire. Kari Greer was there for the first chunk of the fire, making some incredible pictures. And I was there as containment was going up. And one of my assignments was to go photograph the bear teams uh, suppression repair, building water bars, and that's hard work. Oh yeah, physical work. I mean, uh, masticators were out in some of the, the the hill country on the front end of the fire, just dropping trees left and right. And these are large pneumatic arms on these basically cherry pickers. And I'm watching them take these trees, putting the arm up to the top of the tree, three quarters of the tree. They didn't even have to cut it with the cutter. They just push on the tree and it fell over. So it just shows you also. Um, you know, some of the hazards that people are dealing with these fires. I mean, I mean, you look at the fatality that we had at the Ferguson fire last year with Brian Hughes. And I mean, some of the things that firefighters are having to face now are more dangerous than the flames itself driving on these roads, of course. And then all these snags and hazard trees. I mean, it is that, I mean, it's scaring me shitless at the Ferguson fire. Like, uh, to be totally honest, the last two years, the thing I'm most afraid of at fires now are hazard trees. It terrifies me. And you're just driving around there, and they cleared a lot of the trees, you know, two, you know, 200 feet off the road. But you're hearing interior snacks fall at, like, night when they're firing out. And it hits oh, yeah. around with a thud, and it rattles your feet. And it is – it's terrifying, dude. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, The uh, just the operational dangers that we, you know, experience every day. <laughs> A lot of people don't know about that either. And I think that your book also, Terra Flamma, your book, it also exposes that because you do write about these operational hazards in your book. True. And, and I think, again, it goes back. I'm, I'm photographing climate issues and fires at night, but part of the whole ecosystem or, or point of platform of Terra Flamma is also, again, to tell the story of firefighters on the front line, what they're experiencing you know, what the hazards are there. And one reason it's so important to me is because I've experienced it myself. I mean, I, I've seen it. I'm, you know, just because I'm there with the camera doesn't shield me from any of these operational hazards. You know, maybe I'm not running a saw or flying a helicopter around at night, but I, I see these things firsthand and it makes me acutely aware of the, the dangers that you all risk out there.
Oh yeah, absolutely. And so going back to Terra Flama, that was your inspiration behind the book is to just basically get our story out. Well, the, the, the I mean, book had two, the two, two functions. Uh, the, the first, well, it's all about getting the story out. So that book was a way to encapsulate the work I had done in the first six years of the project to create a visual record of these wildfires in California and share each fire and sort of the story behind it. So the public could take this book and be drawn in by these pretty pictures of fires and then go through the book and read some of the text. And when they're done with it, be like, hey, I understand what wildland firefighters do. I understand some of the factors that play into fire behavior. And just so so much of it is awareness, right? I want people to know the work that you all do. And I want people to see the effects of what's happening. Well, I think it's important that you expose the uh, effects that it has on the population too. Absolutely. I mean, civilians, how they're impacted. And so that book uh, was a lot of for consistency was landscape. So there's really not a lot of people in that book. So one of the projects I'm working on is really gonna focus a lot more on the human element, the effect on firefighters, the effect on civilians, the one I'm gonna, that's gonna be shared in the next few months. And so I'm really excited to do that because I think that's where, I don't wanna say the project lacked, but that's one area I really wanna focus on this summer is I've got some some lighting equipment um, and, and one of the ways photographically I'd like to expand this year is portraits of firefighters on the fire line. I've got like a little portrait setup I put together and, you know, when people have some downtime or they're taking a rest or they're away from their crew, so the rest of the crew won't give them, you know, give them a lot of crap while they're handing the photos <laughs> again, you know, and like kind of like, you know, the, the the covered in ash or tired or sweat or, you know, just like people basically out there looking salty, working hard or I mean, even if they're not or they're tired of briefing or it's, the, you know, the ops chief looking exhausted in the trailer after a 14 day roll or something like that. I don't know. These are just ideas I have, but I really want to show like this, the really human intimate side of wildland firefighting, but of course, in like a very safe and respectful way. And it goes back, you know, the thing I care about most is trust and relationships with people. And I always want to do right by the people who are letting me photograph them. And we have discussions in journalism a lot. It's that people say my subject or my project, it's never your subject or your project. You are allowed the privilege of going into people's world and lives and they give you that trust. And it is hugely important that no matter what you do in the stories you tell that you're respectful of that. And that's a human element part of this whole discussion too. It's like as a firefighter, like looking from the outside or I guess the inside looking out, I could see one of your pictures in the Terra Plama book. And I know what that fire is doing to the communities around it, but not necessarily from the public, from the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. that I think it's important that you capture that. And if you could actually capture, go into the, your other project and capture like what we experience every day from both the civilian and the firefighter side, I think it's, I think it'd be great. It'd tell a hell of a story. Totally, totally. And I mean, personally, I've, you know, the last couple, six summers dropping everything I'm doing to go chase wildfires and getting called on assignment. I mean, it's affected my personal life. I've, I've had relationships fail, other reasons involved that, have partially been influenced by my schedule. You know, I've, I've missed dates. Uh, I canceled my own 30th birthday party last summer to go to the Ferguson Fire and Assignment for the Forest Service. But best birthday present ever was to be photographing the Horseshoe Meadows hotshots firing out Highway 41 under the person meteor shower in Yosemite with nobody there. It was a pretty incredible. So, um, you know, you do make, I guess, calculated decisions that, that take you away from other things. But again, it goes back to like the dangers. Like I've experienced some of the not so great effects of, of sort of um, being in the fire world as well. These these human effects, you know, it's, it's hard on fam- family life, friendships. Uh, you know, when you get home, sometimes you're just really tired and want to rest or you've seen some crazy shit. And you're just like, I need to like 
sleep in my room for two days and not go out or maybe you want to go out and drink a lot or who knows but the thing is this it makes me so acutely aware of why ptsd substance abuse and and depression and ultimately in some cases you know someone taking their own life is is so much higher amongst first responders than the general population and it's a very large problem and uh According to Nelda, uh, Nelda St. Clair, she runs some of the SISM teams, or she used to run the SISM teams here uh, around the region. And mm-hmm. uh, she was saying that per capita, we have the highest concentration of uh, first responder suicides out of any occupation in the entire world. We have the highest concentration. Really? Wildland firefighting? Yep, wildland firefighting. I don't know is... where she's getting her data from, but, you know, as far as, you know, if you compare that to any other occupation where you have a, a shit more a shit ton more of people, you know, it makes sense. The numbers make sense. We're a small community. We probably only average about, I don't know, fifty thousand or something like that, if that, across, you know, contractors and agencies. Right. That's a high, high number. I think last year we had twenty six total. Wow. Yeah. That's very um very sobering. Yeah. But I mean, I, that's another. Th- that's a whole other discussion, man. I wish we had some sort of uh, outlet or more support. But you know, they're working on it. I guess. <laughs> I, I think I think that changes are coming, albeit slowly, but they they will happen. And I think that's one thing I want to do with the, the next phase of this project is is show people, you know, civilians and firefighters what they're experiencing on the front lines, and hopefully that'll help. Uh, continue a discussion and grow the discussion about mental health awareness because it's just important just as important as as pt staying in shape i mean you 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 sprain your ankle on the fire line you get you get pulled off the line and rehab it you get the care you need so you can go back out and fight fire it should be the same thing with mental health if you're suffering from having seen terrible things or you need to work on family life you know we need to have pretty robust resources there for people to to get healthy again And, and like you said we've got citizens and a lot of people who are doing really good, important, powerful work. But I just think also we should have a broader way, array of resources available. And also, I think it's great that a lot of this stuff is talked about in the open and destigmatized. I mean, Chief John Hawkins, who is the IC of the Cedar Fire in 03 and just retired as the RRU chief here, I, I was fortunate enough to see him speak at the, the SoCal Association of Foresters and Firewarns in May. And one of the things he wrapped his presentation up with is like, look, like, don't be afraid to reach out for help. If you need to talk to somebody, you're feeling it like it is the best thing you can do for yourself and your family and those around you is to seek help. And oh, he said absolutely. during his talk, he's like, I'm not afraid to share it. He's like, I've sought out counseling for his, you know, his own, you know, his own, um, I don't know if his PTSD, but, you know, mental health effects that he's had covering fires and being in the fire service for over 50 years. And he's like, I want you to go share this and not be afraid to say it. And so, like, I just want to echo that here on this this podcast. And I mean, I'm sure there's firefighters that will be listening to this if you're listening to it now that, you know, don't be afraid to reach out and ask for help. I mean, shoot me a DM or text me or call me if you ever like are in a place like I'll be a listening ear. I may not be the qualified person you ultimately will want to work with, but I'm happy to lend an ear. I mean, I, I think people just want to be listened to and be able to tell their story. Yeah. I think it's important that we help each other too. That's the thing. It's like we, we work in the field for, you know, six, eight months and then we're just dropped. So we lose that sense of purpose. And this has been a common thing among every guest of, of mine, every guest that's been on the show, they've always brought up mental health on their own volition. I've never like cued them or straight them into this conversation. It's always been a natural kind of uh, conversation. That that tells me that there's a problem. Wow. Yeah. That tells me that there's a serious problem. 
pretty wild, man. That is wild. Yeah, and the, also we're not taking into account like the impacts that the that these fires have on the general populace too, like the civilians too. Well, I went to a, a climate summit in March in Sonoma, hosted by Julia Jackson of Jackson Family Wines, one of the big vineyards up there, and the president of Sonoma State University. I got to have breakfast with her and some other people. She. Her house was destroyed in Fountain Grove in the October 2017 Tubbs fire. She had to get run out down the street in her pajamas with her husband and got picked up by like a battalion chief in their pickup and taken out. But, you know, hearing these civilian stories of the loss that they've had and, you know, they, they've been renting a house for a year and a half and they finally were just able to find another house. But real estate prices are so high that, you know, they, you know, it, the, the house is small or not as, you know, things like that. I mean, people... It, up in Butte County lost, it was like either 20 or 25% of its housing stock in a matter of hours when Paradise was destroyed. A lot of seniors who live there have had to relocate or living in, you know, um, um, not the same housing they were. And when you're 85 years old, that stresses you out. I guarantee oh, yeah. you that th these fires have indirectly killed people from mental health and stress. Oh, affects senior it. citizens. I mean, I mean, you look at where housing was already expensive in Santa Rosa. I mean, if people didn't have full insurance payouts or didn't have adequate insurance, I mean, you're wiped out, you're ruined. People, I've heard stories of people moving to Texas. Um, it is, you know, or other other states where the cost of living is lower because the wildfires just wiped them out. There's, like you said, there's a huge mental health effect on the population. And there's, um, I forgot what it's called, but there is actually a condition now where it's anxiety and mental health effects from uh, climate change. Huh. That's the first I've heard about that, but I, I totally understand it, especially if you're living in a, a part of the country where you're living with fire, essentially. Mm -hmm. A lot of these places, sometimes you can't even get fire fire coverage on your home. Absolutely. It's crazy, man. But, I mean, that's not everywhere, but I guess that if the underwriter deems your house is unsavable, they're not going to underwrite your home for being insured with fire. Right. Well, this is the discussion we're having is that insurance premiums are going up, some houses are uninsurable, and given the destructive fires we've had on homes, that insurance insurers are reconsidering what houses they will insure and i forgot the name of the insurance company but it was based in butte county and basically they were totally wiped out with all their insurance claims from the campfire and they had to go into receivership by uh the state essentially to to cover all their claims and a lot of people probably will never be paid out and made whole and i'm not up to date and i don't know more of the details but you're reading about these things and again these are the the ripple effects of wildfire behavior and climate change i mean they're they're secondary tertiary effects that go on for years yeah, well, yeah, we always put a price on like suppression efforts, but like I was saying earlier, it's those hidden costs. Those aren't really reported to what firefighters see. You know, we always mm -hmm. on our national or interagency sit rep, we do have suppression costs, but what we don't see is what did it cost to repair that? What did it cost to re rebuild homes? What did it cost to rebuild somebody's car or get them a new car after it burnt down out of the side of the road? We don't think about that stuff. Well, and, and that's true, and it's this, this whole ecosystem of, of things that people are being affected by, and I think that goes back to some of the pictures and stories I want to tell, is that we, you know, media in general, TV, um, you know, radio, print, social media does a decent job of sharing wildfire stuff, but there's a certain level of depth and nuance that gets lost, and it's like fire is 80% contained and has cost 16 million acres, or 16 million dollars to fight, and and all this stuff, and it's like, that's great to get out all these stats and numbers, but, like, let's tell the story. And there's some really great 
wildfire and climate reporters out there. Um, a friend of mine, her name's Lizzie Johnson. She's a um, staff writer or reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. She's done some incredible and powerful storytelling about the campfire in paradise and survivors in their recovery. She's actually writing a book about it that should be out in the next year or two that when it comes out, I encourage people to check out. She's just got a great heart and, and is out there uh, on the fire line, you know, with the firefighters telling these stories and the civilians. And so she also really captures that human angle. And it goes back to, like we said earlier, like this is storytelling. I mean, we are like, I view myself fundamentally as a storyteller. I use a camera, she uses a pen or you know, whatnot, what but we're all, we're all trying to, to share this story. And I've been fortunate along the way that I get to experience like something really cool in life. Well, you guys have the same mission. That's yeah. It's, it's crazy though. I, I wish there was more people like you guys out there. like the people that are actually telling the story of wildland fire, because when you ask the general public about, Oh, or the pe- general public asked you, Oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a wildland firefighter. So you're, jumping out of planes or you're a hot shot that's like the only two there's no real yeah, in between like oh you're one of the smoke jumpers or hot shot or th- this and that and it's and it's kind of funny so um and one other thing i want to try and do going forward if i have the resources i, I want to create like a, a scholarship and maybe it'll be through an organization for like a young journalist photographer reporter who's maybe in school or fresh out of school to to do climate reporting because i think that we need more vi- voice voices telling these stories of fires as it goes on and I think that, to be totally honest, I think minorities are really underrepresented in climate reporting. I mean, in people of color and, and, and women, there's most of the people who are wildfire photographers, in my anecdotal experience, are white males. And look, there's like nothing on its face wrong with that. That's just how it is and kind of the system we have. But I think that if we want to tell more stories and better stories, we need a bigger diversity of voices out there. And so if I can use my position and what I've done to help other people tell those stories, then uh, that's something I really would like to do in the future. Well, it's good to see someone else's perspective too, you know? Absolutely. And and that's what it is. It's other people's perspective. And it's like, why not, you know, this kid who grew up in I don't know, rural Calaveras County or up in the hills of Humboldt, who, who may not have, have had the same opportunities I had growing up in Orange County to, to help enable them to tell this story and then let them run with it. Like I really, that's something I really feel passionate about too, because they can tell the story in a nuanced way that I can't. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you should do that, man. That'd be cool. Yeah. And, and I've had some discussions about how to do that. You know, it, it, it'd probably be like a, a grant or a um, um, fund that's dispersed once a year with like a, a group of judges through a, an existing foundation or organization. Cause I don't have the ability right now as one person to, to totally run that, but I'm, I'm looking at some ways to do that and per- perhaps getting some sponsors to underwrite. And on that note, I want to give mystery ranch a shout out. They uh, have been working with Bethany Thomas of the smoky generation to do this series of micro grants which is essentially what I'm talking about to give wildland firefighters some funds to, to write, uh, to photograph, to do creative things, to talk about their experiences on the fire line, which I think is really cool. And I, I've been fortunate enough to meet Bethany and she's, she's totally awesome and is also a great storyteller. And, and, you know, I give kudos to mystery ranch for underwriting that. And I actually just did a photography exhibit of my wildfire work in Bozeman, Montana in June. It was my first exhibit outside of California and they underwrote that exhibit. So I'm, awesome. I'm very much appreciative uh, for their support. And, you know, it's cool to see companies uh, step up to do that. No, I think it's important too that, you know, we provide these opportunities because <laughs> let's be honest here, you're, you get sucked into this world and sometimes you get like myself, for instance, I, I got sucked into this wild and fire world and I haven't left. It's been 11 years and, you know, I, I wish I could go get a degree or whatever, but 
it's not necessarily the case for everybody and everybody right. doesn't have that opportunity to do it yeah exactly and like you know working with some of the type two crews here you have kids 18 year olds who are just out of high school and, and trying to start a career and make some money and and do something and and you know they have to go to work immediately and so i it's just these different and that's the thing with fire i think in a lot of ways it's an equalizer right it, at incidents you have everyone from someone who's just working an hourly summer job to somebody who's a career you know fire behavior analyst or climate you know and you know f or um I met from the National Weather Service who's got like a PhD in meteorology and you have, and everyone's kind of coming together for this common purpose. Oh yeah, it is the great equalizer like you're saying, man. But yeah, jeez, uh, dude. I don't well, we've know, covered, man. We've covered a lot of ground. We um, have. I guess anything else that comes to mind that we want to chat about? Yeah, I mean, I think we pretty much covered everything, dude. Um, I mean, we've covered the impacts of populations, definitely covered okay. that. I mean, speaking of that, dude, could you imagine the sheer and utter fucking terror that the uh, victims of the campfire experienced on their way out of the area? I, I had a battalion chief uh, from Cal Fire from up north the morning of the campfire text me. I, I said, what's going on? Should I be on my way up there? He's like, only come up here unless you want to see a human tragedy unfold. And the stories that have come out of survival oh, and sure. some of those sheriffs uh from butte county their dash cam videos and first person videos i mean it is uh, it is almost unfathomable unbelievable even in the context of the fire behavior that we've seen and i, I do want to give a shout out to to uh, butte county sheriff and, and uh sheriff Corey. he did they all did a really really powerful job under under pressure um, i mean a lot of those deputies were the people pulling the bodies out of the houses and the stuff that they've seen um, you know, they, they just really stepped up to the task, I, I think in a, in a really powerful, and of course firefighters as well. But I think that I saw the way the sheriff department communicated and I think they did a really good job. And sometimes law enforcement, public relations is not always the most robust. And I just think they really stepped up to the plate and did a, a good job. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty, and I was up in paradise actually in March. I went back up to photograph sort of the recovery efforts and, I mean, there's very few building permits that have been issued. There's a recovery effort, but not when I was there, other than maybe two houses I saw getting framed out, nothing had been touched. I mean, you just have cars overgrown by grass in people's driveways. The house is gone or the house is there. Uh, the water system's contaminated with benzene. It's allegedly going to cost $300 million to remediate. Oh, I mean, that, as far as I'm concerned, paradise is our Chernobyl in California in a different way. Yeah. Well, there's the, like I said, man, those long-term effects and those unseen impacts that we don't ever think about. Like think about the poor, uh, search and rescue guys or the sheriffs you were talking about. Yeah. I, for this one community. of this upcoming project, I interviewed a search and rescue volunteer from El Dorado County by day. She's a, a farrier. She puts shoes on horses and takes care of their feet. When we spoke, she talks about how, you know, they go out and look for like a lost hiker and maybe sometimes they'll find a body or, or something like that. But they're literally going house to house in bunny suits with cadaver dogs, pulling bodies out of the rubble, pulling bodies out of cars. And it's it was a scale of, of like nothing they've ever seen before. And, and those SAR people are experiencing PTSD, too. And so um, it is it's it's incredibly widespread, like you talk about. Oh, yeah. It's like I said, man, it's there's many turning gears on this whole operation in that ICS structure. And 
we need to. I, I don't know what I don't know what to do. It's beyond my pay grade, of course. But as far as the mental health thing goes, I, I definitely think that we need to do a better job. I think a lot of it boils down to leadership and funding to to pay people who are qualified to be the to be those resources when they're needed. Uh, I think is really important to you. And in the future, I haven't ruled out. And as a contractor, I'm very limited in what I can do is doing some sort of advocacy work on the behalf of, of wildland firefighters in the wildland fight, firefighting world on a political level, um, at least with like my local representatives, uh, you know, in Congress and things like that. And I have to look in to see what I, what I'm at, what I'm allowed to do, not do, because again, as a government contractor, it's, it's restrictive, but I think it's just an independent journalist. I think that, you know, me advocating for, uh, you know, fund better funding or something like that for wildland firefighters. I don't think there's, there's a conflict of interest, but that's something else too. Cause you know, I've been fortunate enough to build a bit of a platform. And again, it goes back to doing right by the wildland fire world. And if I can help be a voice to support the work that you all are doing, then that's another component of the project that I would consider a success. Absolutely. Wholeheartedly agree with you, man. And then, um, I guess on a, on a closing note too, uh, you know, as fire season ramps up, if you're listening to this and you're on a crew or something, you get assigned to a fire and, in South Ops or North Ops in California, shoot me a, a DM on Instagram. My username's Stuart Paley, S-T-U-A-R-T-P-A-L-L-E-Y. Shoot me a DM if you're on the fire line with your crew, what division you're on, what's going on, you know, if you're firing out or, or whatever, because I'd love to get out there and get in with the crew and take pictures. And again, I'm red carded. Um, you know, there's some hotshot crews out there. I know, I know there's soups and I have good relationships with them. And I'm sure they'd be willing to vouch for me, uh, but half of them are in Alaska, so they don't have cell phones right now. But anyway, I, I'd really love to get out there and, and tell your story. If your crew's doing something cool or if you've got a, a particularly interesting life story or had to overcome adversity or, you know, like you're the only, you know, girl on like an all-guy hotshot crew, like I'd love to share that story. I think the public really would enjoy that. And I, you know, I, I think people want to see the work that you're all doing. And I think in a lot of ways it's been somewhat underrepresented so if i can help be a voice to share that story and i can i can earn your trust i'm i'm incredibly grateful for that hell yeah there you go guys hit him up so where do you plan on going next man uh what's your next what's the future of Stuart paley well there's there's two projects again i wish i could talk about them a little more but i was talking about that sar uh interview uh that is writing related so that's a little bit of a hint is, is one of the projects that i'm working on right now and the other one has to do um, with some potential video work that that might be on, on a large scale, but again, I can't really can't really share too much on that. But both of them have been taking up a lot of my time, uh, which is one of the reasons I've been kind of quiet on social media. But they're they're really exciting, and those things when they come to fruition, I'm going to be really stoked to share that with everyone. But um, something else I can talk about is like um, I've been doing some work with a with an interior design retailer of my non-fire work of just like pretty pictures I've taken on my road trips and they're, they're framing them and selling them in their catalog. And I think online or maybe in their stores. And so I basically had to learn how to do retail manufacturing. And that's just been a way for me to kind of keep the lights on since fire season has been slow is just trying to diversify a little bit of the work I do. So the direction I'm going in uh, this summer is more faces, human effects of the fires, both on firefighters and civilians really sharing that human element and then these two other projects that I'll be able to share a little, a little bit too, in a little bit rather. Dude, you know what you should do is you should do a one, well, like a one year later project for the campfire. Yeah, I think that's, a, I think it's a good idea, and I might, I, I think it might be good to partner with an organiza media organization to go do that because I, you know, now in March, of course, there was no TFR, so I was able to go fly my drone over some of the stuff and, and to photograph it. Uh, you know, then in, in in a couple months, I think that's a great idea. 
Yeah, see if uh, somebody can hook you up with like uh, REI or Patagonia or Sierra Nevada Brewery. I know those guys. Yeah, Sierra Nevada has actually been really, really, I mean, with their resilience, their ale or IPA. I mean, I really give a lot of these companies that are not fire related kudos for stepping up. The amount of people, and that, that's one other, I guess, closing point is we've talked a lot about it, serious effects of wildfires, climate change, PTSD, but we've also talked to me about community and how it's an equalizer. And I'll say, on the fire line, you see c- civilians on the worst day of their lives. Their house is burning down. They've lost their pets. Everything they've worked hard for is gone in a, in, in a poof of smoke, literally. And the grace and resiliency and kindness that these people have exhibited under horrible conditions is, is really, really powerful and, and humbling. And, I mean, you'll have, like, people offer me, like, a cold, cold glass of water. I'm like, no, let me give you Gatorade out of the fridge in my truck or something <laughs> like that. Like, no, like, please. And it's just – and so that and how companies stepped up to help the victims of the, you know, the fires out. I mean, the car fire, the campfire, the Woolsey fire, the wine country fire siege, this never ending list of fires and how local companies and businesses have stepped up to help people like kudos to them. Oh, yeah. We need more of that in the community. You know, it's it, it takes an army literally to recover from these events. And if we didn't have companies like this, literally, these people would be ass out of a home, a job or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, too, if you're a non-fire person listening to this, also one organization that uh, I'm really passionate about and have uh, been been able to do a little work with is the Eric Marsh Foundation for Wildland Firefighters. So a little plug for them, too. So if you want to help out um, an organization uh, that helps out firefighters, they're a great one uh, to donate to. And there's quite a few other organizations out there that do good work as well. So I encourage you to, if you want to give back to the fire community, to look into some of those uh, nonprofits that are out there too doing good work for firefighters. Speaking of community, man, there's a lot of hotshot crews down there in uh, in re- all of Region Five, basically that put on huge event and fundraisers for the all of the uh, charity organizations oh, that yeah. we rely Hot, on. Hotshot up. I oh, mean, yeah. they do like you know. I I mean, a lot of those crews. I mean, we got, we got like what 50 hotshot crews in Region Five. They At do least. a lot of good work. I mean, there's volleyball tournaments, cookouts. You know, skeet shooting. Uh, it, it's cool. Or like one one story I really love is the Dalton Hotshots up in uh, Glendora or Azusa, what or whatnot. Um, Claremont Craft Ales. They've done like the Dalton Double Big Porter Double IPA something, and you know they've helped raise money for uh, the Wildland Firefighter Foundation, I believe. And it's really cool to see a local business step up, and they make damn good beer. So it, it's cool. I love that stuff about our community, man. It's it's we're humble quiet professionals and we have the biggest hearts man that's one thing that just totally absolutely love about our fire community i well one of my one of my favorite fire memories is uh actually i believe it's the arrowhead hotshots 2015 initial attack during the rocky fire which was one of the first big boom and fires out in lake county um they they were firing out and they saved a house they were just firing out in some grass and there was a bench just like a wooden bench uh-huh. that was out in this field and the you know their little ground fire was going towards it and they had two guys run out there and it must have weighed 50 pounds because it was wrought iron hardware around it and I, I have a picture of them walking you know the fire's like six inches high it's just a backing fire but they were trying to create some space around this house and they're just picking up this bench walking through it, and setting it down in the driveway and i'm like Nobody had to go out there and save that bench, but to the people who own that house who have been terrorized by this fire and had to evacuate and weren't sure if their house was there to come back to know that that bench is out there, and I'm sure they put it out there for a reason because it's a pretty nice house, that means everything to them. It's like those little things in that 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 heart of service and selflessness like that. Those things really touch me, and it's one of the reasons why like I continue to do this project. Hell yeah, man. That's awesome. 
I mean, yeah. you, we don't know what that bench meant to those guys. Right. We, we just, we, I mean, and maybe it wasn't a big deal, but I mean, that can mean every, everything to someone or, you know, when, when, you know, there's a house, they built, you know, they, they save the flag or take down the flag or something. Just these, these things that show tremendous respect for the people affected by it. It's, it's really nice to see. And that's the things that matters. It's the little things that matter. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So where can we find your book, man? Where can we find Terraflama? So the Terraflama book came out last last fall in September. You can buy it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, boutique bookstores. I mean, it's it's pretty widespread. I, I have some copies left. I'm just so busy right now. I'm not always able to play Warehouse and Fulfillment Center on my own, but I've got about a dozen copies left that I can sign and I throw in like a – I have like a little cool Velcro patch with a logo I made and a sticker I throw in. So if you want to – grab one directly from me. I've got a few left, but I mean, you can pretty much buy it anywhere. I mean, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, most major bookstores. Hell yeah. Well, look for that book guys. So, uh, where can we find you on the socials? Well, again, um, Instagram is just my name, Stuart Paley, S T U A R T P A L L E Y. If you want to reach out, you can also shoot me an email. It's Stuart Paley at gmail.com. That's also my Twitter. So I try and keep it pretty level and, and even across the way. So if you want to reach out or have questions, concerns, criticism, I love criticism, shoot, shoot it away. And I mean, I, I definitely talk about topics that are uh, somewhat of hot button issues on, on social media on occasion, climate change, recently some political stuff. Um, I, I love having conversations. I mean, please disagree with me. Like, I think we need to have conversations of people of differing opinions. But as always, let's keep it respectful. Let's keep it civil. And, and let's have the hard conversations. And, and I've, I've learned a lot about things I didn't know a lot about. And I've changed my views on some things, too, because of what I've learned from people I've disagreed with. I think that, in general, having an open mind is really, really important. So back to that, feel free to reach out. Like, I'd love to have conversations with whoever's listening. I mean, if you're a climate scientist, F-band, hotshot Sawyer, I mean, whatever you're doing out there, like, I'd love to hear from you. Let's talk. I'd love to learn. Hell yeah, man. Well, I'm sure a lot of people are going to be hitting you up. And if, uh, I mean, you got a lot of followership already, so I'm pretty sure people hit you up every day, but, uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's cool to see that the community come together. And I mean, a lot of people in the fire world, I, I first met through Instagram, which was kind of cool. It's, it's a small world, man. Yeah, it is. And then thank you for having me on and for starting this podcast. I think just by the initial success that you've had, I think it just shows how there was a need to have this forum for these in-depth conversations. So thank you for putting this together. Absolutely, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. So one last thing, man. Sir. Shout out to any heroes, mentors, homies, anything like that. Let her rip, dude. I don't have any friends. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, again, a a shout out to some of the wildland fire photographers out there who's, who have helped build this world. Um, You know, Tom Story, Kent Porter, Kari Greer, Mark Theason, uh, Noah Berger, there are all these incredible wildland fire photographers who've been doing it for a long time and, and kind of helped influence my work and, and helped me get my start in this. And also just like a couple of like uh, my friend, Scott Gorman, he's the superintendent of Dalton Hotshots, just an incredible ambassador for the fire world. Just does a really, really good job. Great person, great firefighter. Uh, Aaron Humphrey at El Dorado, hotshot superintendent, great guy you know, really cares about his crew and just a, another great ambassador for the fire world. And then I don't know, I, I, there's just so many dozens of wildland firefighters that I've met that are just like the most awesome people. So to all of you, thank you for, for letting me tell that story. Oh, and then uh, I guess in general too, like two people who have given me artistic influences into the work I do, Vincent Van Gogh, the 19th century French artist, uh, his work Starry Night in, in French cafe or in Paris cafe at night, 
the way he he uses light at night to create an image. He he's quoted as saying, "I often think that the night is more colorful than the day." And if you look as, at his pastel drawings and paintings from the late 19th century, he creates these incredible night scenes that are super colorful, and that's really influenced my work. And I think if you look at my pictures, you'll see a little bit of resemblance in the use of color and, and fire as its own unique light source to go and tell those stories. Definitely uh, makes sense as far as that being an influence for your photography, man. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Well, cool. I think well, again. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Awesome discussion, and uh, oh, I think that's about the the uh, tie-in point. So, uh, yeah. Awesome. Cool, We're man. All tied in. Time to go hit the chow line. Yeah, no shit, right? <laughs> Speaking of which, I got dinner date tonight with the old wife. Oh. Yeah. Didn't you just get married? She's not that old yet. No, I got old. I got married uh, last year, last year oh, in the fall. Congratulations. Ah, thanks, man. Thanks. Things are moving fast. That's for sure. <laughs> Life moves along, right? Well, hey, have a great night. We'll be in touch. You too, man. Thanks for coming on the show. You, and uh, yeah, thanks for All listening right. to The Anchor Point. See ya. Cheers. All right, guys, there we go. Episode number 11 is in the books with Mr. Stuart Paley. Stuart, dude, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate your time and your professional insight as to what you see on the other side of the lens. Your photography is epic. And your book, Terra Flamma, dude, is epic too. And it's epic for more than one reason. I think it's important that the message you're spreading with Terra Flamma is good for not only showcasing what we do as wildland firefighters in the field and the efforts and trials and all the things that we go through, but also kind of highlights the effects of uh, climate change on wildland fire and also those direct impacts that it has to the communities involved with wildland fires. Keep up the good work, man. Keep spreading the good word. The rest of you guys, just want to say thank you for uh, continuing to share the message of the Anchor Point podcast. And uh, yeah, keep up the good work. If you guys got any uh, epic photos from Alaska or wherever you guys are engaged in fires, uh, tag us. Send them our way. We'll definitely highlight you. Also want to give a shout out to uh, Mystery Ranch, not only for uh, hooking Stewart up with a pack for his uh, career there, but also, uh, yeah, we're going to be working together on a little side project, and I'm pretty stoked about that. And Dana, if you're listening, dude, I can't wait to have you on my show, man. Let's talk about packs and talk about some other stuff. Can't give away too much about that project with Mystery Ranch, but uh, yeah, it's going to be pretty damn cool. I'm excited about it. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, keep tuning in to the Anchor Point Podcast. You can find them on pretty much every hosting service. So Stitcher, uh, TuneIn. What else we got? We got iTunes. You can go to the direct website at anchorpoint.com. And you can also look at us on uh, Spotify. So keep tuned in. Keep safe. And uh, yeah, maybe I'll see you guys on the big one. Later. Later.